it's time for Legally Speaking, joined as always by Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Michael, good morning. How are you? I'm doing well, socially isolating and uh, staying healthy. Indeed. I've been reviewing the stories that we are set to discuss today, and I am struck by the variety of complications that I would never have foreseen regarding family law, custody agreements, social distancing, and COVID-19. Where are we on this? Indeed. Uh, we are, as we've talked about previously, the courts have been dealing with uh, emergency uh, or uh, urgent cases, uh, and they're doing them now uh, by telephone or video conference. And in the criminal context, some of those urgent cases are pretty obvious, things like a person waiting in jail for their trial. We sort of have to deal with that and can't just put it off indefinitely, right? Mm. Uh, but we're seeing now uh, a whole host of uh, family law cases where there are genuinely uh, urgent matters that need to be dealt with, and we're seeing uh, decisions coming out of the courts uh, dealing with those. Uh, one of the first cases that caught my attention uh, was a case dealing with the um, custody of an eight-year-old uh, child mm -hmm. uh, living over in Vancouver. And the fact pattern was that the, uh, the uh, parent shared custody of the eight-year-old, uh, and they're described as being, you know, sort of uh, bright, uh, cooperative uh, people who had uh, both uh, the best interests of this eight-year-old child uh, at heart. But the challenge arose this way. Um, the uh, young child was staying with her dad uh, over spring break, uh, and uh, the mother of the child um, is a nurse working at the Vancouver General Hospital. Uh, in her capacity working as a nurse, um, she was uh, exposed to uh, and helping treat uh, patients with COVID-19. Um, and she expressed to uh, her former partner uh, her concern about not wanting to infect their child. Yes. Um, and so uh, they had discussions about uh, how they could deal with that. Uh, ultimately, the father said that he was concerned about uh, returning the child to her mother's uh, care and because of the risk of infection and proposed various things like having them spend time together by phone, uh, having the child come and visit and speak to her uh, mom um, from the balcony of the mother's apartment, um, and so the matter wound up uh, in one of these emergency hearings by telephone, and it was over to the judge to sort out what is to be done here. Um, and the overriding principle uh, in these uh, cases dealing with uh, children is what is in the best interest of the child. And there would be a presumption that a child is going to benefit from spending time with both parents. That would be a, a starting principle. But what are we to do uh, with uh, this risk of infection? And the judge pointed out that essentially we're in uncharted territory and there's very little case law dealing with it. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the judge tried to set out some of the things that uh, uh, judges should be considered, considering when determining whether to modify custody arrangements to take into account risks posed by uh, COVID-19. Those included things like whether the child is at elevated risk, maybe as a result of a uh, underlying medical condition, whether there are people living in either household that would be at elevated uh, risk if they were to contract the virus, um, and then things like what mitigation steps were each parent uh, taking uh, to reduce the risk of infection. Uh, and the judge considered that in this case for both parents. Uh, the father uh, was somebody who uh, runs a demolition company, 
Uh, and the judge analyzed what the father was doing uh, to minimize risk, and he provided evidence about um, only coming into work when nobody else was present, um, and uh, having uh, doing other work remotely, and efforts he'd made for all of his employees to stay safe driving trucks with uh, gloves and so forth, and then analyzed what the nurse mother was doing. And she gave evidence that she was, uh, well, they have to uh, assume, medical staff, that they are at constant risk of exposure and infection, um, that she was taking all of the precautions recommended to nurses, and those included uh, wearing hospital-issued scrubs, leaving her shoes and clothing at work, wiping down her bag, showering as soon as she got home, uh, and using bleach to clean door handles and other surfaces that she'd be touching. Uh, and the evidence was that uh, despite uh, doing work, including caring for um, a particular patient who was confirmed to have COVID-19 and this assumption that uh, you have to assume, working in that environment, that uh, people are going to be infected, that she had not been flagged at that point for being at particularly high risk. Uh, and so the judge took into consideration the risk factors that the judge identified and uh, the sort of the the underlying principle, which is um, you must make decisions in the best interest of children. And the judge concluded that, well, there is some risk uh, to the child um, of contracting the virus, that the mother, uh, who's the nurse, uh, was taking reasonable steps to mitigate uh, those risks uh-huh. and took into account the fact that the child didn't have a, a pre-existing condition that would make the child particularly susceptible Uh, And so the judge concluded that the uh, child should go back to spend time uh, with the child's mother um, and set out how that was to work, including things like uh, for the seven-day periods when the child is staying with the mother who's the nurse, she's not to be working during those periods of time. Um, Then uh, also indicated that both parties are to uh, keep uh, communicating as they have been effectively. Uh, and that if there's any change to risk factors or if the uh, mother is uh, flagged at being of high risk as a result of her employment, they need to communicate to, uh, that to each other, and that may impact on the decision. But uh, it brings into stark relief some of these really important competing values, right? You, you have people doing incredibly important work in the community, yes. uh, doctors, nurses, uh, people working in grocery stores and other essential services, when they're doing that, they are putting themselves in jeopardy, and there is some risk that is going to attach to their children. Um, and so uh, when you're a judge charged with deciding what is in the best interest of the child, um, those are going to be weighty, difficult decisions. And this judge has tried to set out a, a framework for how those things are to be approached. Um, you certainly wouldn't want to have a presumption that somebody who's working in one of those critical jobs can't see their children, But on the other hand, those decisions aren't made from the perspective of what's best for the parent or what does the parent really want. Uh, They're made from the perspective of what's in the child's interest. And while the child, of course, would have uh, an interest in spending time with their uh, parents, both of them, Uh um, you you wouldn't uh, want to overlook uh, the the real risk that may be posed these days if there uh, is a heightened risk of infection by permitting that. And you have to consider, of course, other factors, as the judge pointed out, things like people who might be in the household of either of the individuals who could be at high risk. Imagine, for example, if you had, you know, let's say the father, it wasn't the factual pattern here, but let's say the father had uh, a high-risk parent living with him, right, somebody who was elderly or had a 
uh, a high risk factor. Yes. Having the child um, potentially infected would put somebody else at risk, and that's something that judges are also considering in these cases, and I expect we're going to see more of these. I was going to ask, are do judges choose to hear which cases while considering that precedent will be set? What is the process for that? Because I would imagine the judge that uh, was uh, was assigned to this case obviously knew that they were going to be creating some sort of precedent. Do they have to be recognized experts in the field of family law? Or how does that work? That's a great question. Uh, for all cases now, there has to be an application made to a judge uh, by telephone. Uh, to persuade the judge that a case is uh, an, an urgent one, time-sensitive, and needs to go ahead uh, now. The, the issue of specialization has been a, a long-term uh, issue, whether we should have more or less of that uh, in the judiciary. Mm-hmm. Um, and in some places, like in Vancouver, there is some de facto specialization in the provincial court, because, for example, you've got some courthouses, like the one at the Main Street in Vancouver, which would do only criminal, mm-hmm. and then you have other places like the one that's attached to the Supreme Court, which would do family and civil. So there'd be some degree of specialization, but that's not, of course, possible in some smaller centers. And so the idea would be that uh, judges would hear cases of all kinds, uh, and to a large extent, judges, of course, are relying on counsel. Right. Yes. Yeah. You don't necessarily need to be, if you're an open-minded, uh, fair person, uh, to have an encyclopedic knowledge of all areas of the law. That's of course impossible. Uh, but the expectation is that uh, counsel, you have uh, both parties presenting the the law and making the argument, so that if you have a, a fair-minded person, can listen to both sides and come to a decision, even if uh, they may not have been. Uh, an expert in that area uh, prior to becoming a judge. Fascinating. So some specialization, but not uh, in most cases. I want to take a quick break here. Michael Mulligan, as we continue our segment this week, Legally Speaking on CFAX 1070, continues after this. We continue with Legally Speaking now. Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers as we come back from our break. Looking at family law and decisions being made by the courts in these extraordinary times. Michael, we began our conversation by reminding our audience today that for a hearing even to be held, a judge would have to be convinced over the phone that the matter was urgent in nature. How does that work? Uh, well, uh, that as well isn't uh, well defined in terms of what's, what the legal test is, but we are seeing now uh, examples of uh, decisions being made by judges that will provide some guidance in that regard. And that's really how our uh, common law system works, right? If you have a general principle like, uh, you know, we're going to deal with urgent cases. Um, Well, what does that mean, right? It might mean different things to different people. Um, And so the way the system would operate is you would have judges, uh, like in the case we just talked about, sort of setting out principles they think are important. And then uh, other, uh, in the future, as a lawyer, you could look at those and say, okay, fine, I see here what the uh, tests or considerations might be. And that's how the law essentially evolves. there was a, another case uh, which was uh, just decided in terms of whether something was urgent or not mm-hmm. uh, involving uh, a child apprehension case. Those are, I think, in the best of times, uh, very difficult uh, cases, but even more so now. Um, one of the decisions which uh, was just uh, released dealt with a circumstance where a, a child was apprehended by the Ministry of Children and, Family, Children and Families um, and it, the child was apprehended because of a concern about drug and alcohol use by the mother and whether there was uh, some physical abuse of the child. And where there are those kind of apprehensions, 
the provincial legislation that provides for them uh, actually sets out uh, a number of presumptions about why those kind of cases need to be dealt with promptly. And you can just imagine why. If you had a a young child taken away from their parent, and the parent says, you know, hold on, that's not true, right? I, You know, the report that I was using drugs is false. You know, that was my ex lying about it or something, right? Yes, yeah. It, it would be awfully unsatisfactory if the child was apprehended and there was no hearing for, you know, 18 months or something, right? It, it would be a lifetime for a child and could be uh, very harmful. And so uh, one of the decisions which just came out uh, dealt with a circumstance like that, uh, where a child was apprehended, uh, and uh, the uh, director, that's the, the provincial entity that deals with these apprehensions, uh, was saying, well, this isn't really an urgent matter, and arguing that um, their office was short on resources um, and not wanting uh, the hearing to proceed on an urgent basis. The, on the other hand, the lawyer for the uh, mother who had the child taken away uh, wanted, not surprisingly, uh, the uh, hearing to occur promptly uh, and argued to the judge, look, we can do this by uh, telephone uh, and make uh, admissions about things that couldn't be done by telephone and wanted it done uh, right away. And so the judge had to decide, you know, what's to be done here. And in that case, uh, the judge analyzed all of those general principles in the Act, talking about uh, the need to deal with these kind of hearings promptly, and decided that, yes, indeed, that is the sort of case which is a, uh, an urgent one um, and has ordered uh, that the hearing occur uh, by telephone promptly, uh, despite the uh, provincial uh, director for uh, children and families arguing that, you know, this isn't the most urgent case and arguing the director argued that, look, other ones should take priority to this one and saying we only have limited resources. Um, it shows the uh, benefit of having an independent judiciary, right? Uh, yes. The position of the province. The judge said, no, I'm sorry, we're going to deal with this by telephone. And the judge said, I'm seizing myself of this, and we're going to have a telephone conference uh, in a week, and we're going to set the date for the hearing, and we're running this. Um, so that kind of case, you know, in terms of, well, what is urgent, what will happen now is lawyers will who do this work would look at that decision and say, okay, you know, there's been some... Uh, interpretation of what uh, those sections of the Act mean, and that judge has set out why it is uh, uh, an urgent case which should be dealt with by telephone. Uh, and so I could, I would expect that uh, other people in that same uh, circumstance who've had their child apprehended uh, would be making um, similar applications, saying, "Look, me too. I want to do mine in the same way. Let's do it by telephone." Um, and that's good to see. I must say, in terms of the justice system uh, being flexible and uh, you know, making it work in these difficult times. There, I should say, there's a whole other category of cases which haven't yet started to uh, be decided, but I expect uh, if this proceeds for any length of time, we're going to also see cases coming on for people who are paying um, spousal or child support. Yes. Uh, because you're going to have all sorts of oh, people. Oh, yes, financial hardship, yeah. Right. And if you, one of the requirements is that if you're ordered to pay, you know, child or spousal support, and there's some, uh, there has to be a, a reasonable threshold. It's got to be a material change in circumstances, right? Uh, but if there is that, you're you're expected not to just uh, ignore your obligation to pay child or spousal support and try to deal with it later. There, one of the considerations is that 
uh, if there's to be a change, a person should be applying to make the change in advance, not just ignoring the order and coming along weeks or months later saying, hey, how about cancelling those uh, payments I didn't make for the last six or nine months because I was out of work. You're, you're expected to get into court promptly and make your application to uh, modify the order. And so for that reason, there would be a, a reasonable argument to be made uh, that there is some urgency to those cases being decided. And then that's going to raise another issue, which would be uh, if you had a parent who was the recipient uh, of those payments and who was not otherwise employed. Like let's say you had a mother with several children whose only source of income was spousal and or child support, that person would presumptively not be eligible for the federal emergency uh, response benefit because they wouldn't have otherwise been employed. And so you can just imagine what that knock-on effect is going to be. Payor, unable to pay because they've been laid off due to COVID-19. Urgent application, I've got to change this, I have no money, I can't pay. And then you're going to immediately have the person who was the recipient left in the position of, well, what am I supposed to do? I um, have no further income, uh, particularly if that was their only source of uh, income, as might be the case uh, if somebody had young children. And so there's a whole category of uh, cases like that, um, and it will be interesting to watch whether uh, judges find those sort of applications to be uh, urgent matters, like the child apprehension or the child custody issue, or whether they think those are the kind of things which could be dealt with later. Although if you deal with them later, as I said, there's, uh, when you have a person who hasn't paid, uh, there's a high burden uh, if somebody comes along later and says, look, I shouldn't have to be uh, required to pay you know, the child support that I didn't pay for the last nine months when I was unemployed. Um, you know, you should cancel that. Um, one of the problems that person would then run into would be, you know, well, hold on, why didn't you come and ask for this nine months ago? Why did yeah. you wait? Yeah. And so there's going to be, I expect, hundreds or thousands of cases where you've got people even in British Columbia, who have been laid off, no longer have an income, and are simply not capable of making support payments that they would have been uh, ordered to make when they were employed. Um, so um, that, I think, is going to be a, a very interesting thing to watch uh, going forward. Uh, we, we have about four minutes left, Michael. Now, I know we had one other story that we may have briefly touched on with the nine-year-old and the six-year-old, and whether or not yes. they should spend time with their father. Do we want to touch on that at this time? Yeah, I think I can sort of summarize that. Uh, another category of cases that are being dealt with are circumstances where you have modern blended families and you have children who are shared between parents in two relationships. So what do you do when you have a child of a relationship that's spending time with mother and father um, and the mother or father is in a new relationship uh, where there are other children who might be going back and forth uh, to the other parent? What is to be done then? Uh, and courts are looking at things like, well, what is the risk factor of the other child going back and forth when assessing whether there ought to be some change uh, to custody arrangements for one person, right? We yeah. talked about the nurse and the child. Now imagine if the, um, you know, the, uh, there was another, if the nurse mother was in a new relationship and there was a child going back and forth to somebody else it becomes even more complicated. And, of course, the whole point of the social isolation uh, is to avoid these uh, possible chains of transmission. And when you have multiple arrangements 
for children going back and forth between different parents, that is creating a whole other layer of complexity, and we're starting to see cases like the one that you mentioned, where judges are having to assess things like, well, what is that other parent in the new relationship doing to ensure that there isn't transmission into that household that could be passed along to, uh, you know, the shared custodial parent number one. Yeah. Uh, and so all of this uh, is, uh, I think, highlighting just how complicated the family law implications of this are. And with parents who are, with the best of intention, right, doing their best to help their children, um, you can clearly see just how many urgent matters there are going to be, because if you did some of these things, don't deal with it now, it's going to be uh, too late. And so it, it's good to see that the court is finding ways to make these things work, uh, and uh, they are doing so uh, in many cases uh, by uh, permitting these kind of cases that are urgent and important uh, to proceed by, uh, by telephone. Michael Mulligan with Mulligan Defense Lawyers during the second half of our second hour every Thursday, legally speaking on CFAX 1070. Michael, thank you as always for the benefit of your knowledge and insight on these matters. 90 seconds left. Anything else you'd like to touch on? Uh, well, I guess I would say that the uh, watching how the courts have uh, sort of evolved uh, to deal with this thing over the past weeks has been very interesting as uh, counsel. There were originally uh, sort of a flurry of uh, releases by the court deciding how things were going to be dealt with, uh, and now we're seeing um, sort of increased uh, refinement of those general uh, principles, and the refinement is coming uh, as our system is designed to uh, on a case-by-case basis with judges dealing with each of these kind of naughty problems. You know, what do you do with the nurse who might be infected? What do you do with the person who can't pay their support? And what do you do with the... Uh, multiple uh, families with uh, children going back and forth. And, uh, you know, we'll we'll just have to watch this evolve over the coming weeks. Michael Mulligan, pleasure as always. Stay safe. You too. Thank you very much for having me. All right. Have a great day. Talk again soon. Bye now. Thank you.